What's going on, Valley Christian Church? It's great to see all of you guys today. I'm Stephen Francis filling in for Dr. Greg today as we continue our series, Thrones, Who's on the Throne of Your Heart? Now, last time when we were in this series, we talked about the birth of Samson in the sermon, The Power of Perspective. And today, we're going to look into all of Samson's life. But before we get into that, I want to ask a quick question. Do we have anybody in here that is either a college student or the parent of a college student preparing to go back to college? Anybody in here? All right, awesome, awesome. Love you guys. If you are a parent right now in here and you have a child that's in high school or middle school and grade school, God told me to encourage you today and let you know that school starts less than a month from now. You are going to make it amen all right <laughs> stay encouraged but I really truly do pray for all of my college students in here college was one of the best years of my life I learned so much both in the classroom and outside I, I met my beautiful wife in college and some of the connections that I made in college have changed my life still to this day but there are also some things in college that I'm not too proud of and one particular story comes to mind when I think about my college days. My junior year of college, which was 2011, I went to Liberty University, and I was a prayer leader for a group of guys on my dorm. For anybody that doesn't know what a prayer leader is, it's basically what a community group leader is here at Valley. And I had a guy in my group who wasn't a Christian, but he loved to come to my group just because he thought I was a cool guy, of course. So. Um, he was also someone that was uh, of a very wealthy family, and when he went home for spring break my junior year, his parents surprised him with a brand new 2012 Dodge Challenger. I actually have a picture of it right here. This car right here, there's a second one too so you can see it, absolutely beautiful vehicle. He showed up after spring break on campus with this car. People were going nuts. And I remember he was showing me off all the, the specs in the car. And I was like, dude, you are so lucky. I would love to have a car like this. And he said, Steve, I think you're just so cool. How about you drive it for a little bit? To which I said, of course. <laughs> and he was like, nah, man, let's take it another step further. I heard some guys like to race on this one street a few miles from here on this huge straightaway. How about you and me go there and we just drive the car as fast as we can on this street? I was like, all right, this seems like a great idea. I don't know what could go wrong. Let's do this. So we get to the street that he was told. I'm in the driver's seat and he's like, all right, bro, punch it. And I put my pedal to the metal and I felt like I was in fast and furious for the first time in my life. The engine roared, the, the tires screeched, and we literally sped off. We went to 60, 8, 70, 80 miles per hour in seconds. And then we realized suddenly that this is not a straightaway street at all. This street definitely turns right very sharply. And I drove his brand new Dodge Challenger straight into the woods. And we are spinning out of control. There is dirt and bushes and parts of the car flying off. And we are literally screaming for our lives. The one good thing, though, is that while we were screaming, he screamed for the name of Jesus, which made me realize he was listening in the community groups. <laughs> so I felt like a good leader in that moment, despite what was happening. And eventually the car stops and it settles and we literally sit there in dead silence for what felt like five minutes 
And I was like, if I didn't die from this car accident, surely he's about to kill me for destroying his car. But eventually he's like, bro, you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I think we should go. And I was like, I think you're right. So we left and we made it back to the dorm and we high-fived, we laughed it off and I helped pay for the damages, it's fine. But to this day, when I think about that night, I can't help but feel like, man, what in the world were you thinking? That was not a smart thing to do at all. Now, has anybody in here, maybe you didn't try to drive a car as fast as you can on a straightaway, but has anyone in here had a moment where you looked at something you did and was like, what in the world was I thinking? Anybody in here? Thank you so much for your honesty. The thing about that is, is I think that there are certain habits and sins that we struggle with in our lives that keep us asking that same question every day. Why do I keep doing these things that I'm doing? Why am I not able to stop even though I try? I believe we can uncover why we do these things and how we can find victory in Jesus Christ through today's message, which I'm calling Victory Over Vices. The story today in our sermon picks up in Judges chapter 14. Before I get into that, though, for anybody that wasn't with us when we were talking in Judges 13, that was talking about the birth of Samson. Samson's parents were not able to have children, and God tells them that they are going to have a child miraculously, and that this child was going to be the deliverer for the people of Israel. And he was going to deliver Israel through supernatural strength. He was going to have physical abilities that no human being would ever be able to duplicate. And it was going to be powered through God himself through Samson. And because of that, Samson, as a dedication to God, was supposed to be under the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow at that time was like a fast or a diet that the people of Israel would do in order to try to get God's attention. And there were three things about this vow that they needed to do. The first thing was that they weren't supposed to touch any wine or grape juice of any kind. The second, they weren't supposed to touch any dead animal, any dead thing. And the third was that they weren't supposed to cut their hair. Now, this was something that people did in that time for a few weeks, maybe a month or two. But Samson's entire life was supposed to be under this Nazarite vow. Which makes me think that when Samson got older, when I picture Samson, I picture a guy with some big old Jamaican Rastafari dreads and stuff like that since he couldn't cut his hair. But that's just my interpretation. That's me personally. But Samson was supposed to be under this Nazarite vow for his life. And keep in mind, this Nazarite vow was not actually the power from God himself. It was only supposed to be the outward evidence of the inward decision Samson made in his heart to worship the Lord, to live for the Lord. His long hair was not the source of his strength. It was only an outward sign of an inward covenant with God. Now... The Nazarite vow is no longer in practice, but the idea of being set apart for God still is. If you're someone in here that's a Christian right now, you have said in your heart that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that he has ruler, he is ruler over your life. And every action that you do, from being in church today to maybe being in a community group serving in some way, that's not the thing that saves you. That's just the outward reflection that you are saved in your heart. But also similar to Samson is that even though there's been an inward covenant, our outward actions don't always match. 
See, in Judges chapter 14, we see Samson, he's grown up. And Samson's supposed to be the deliverer over Israel by using the supernatural strength. But instead, he uses the supernatural strength to show off just how powerful he is. He continues to get in fights with the Philistinian army. And by the way, the Philistinians in that time were supposed to be the people that were oppressing the people of Israel. That's who Samson was destined to deliver Israel from. And he was getting in fights with the Philistinian, Philistinian I'm going to get that word right eventually, Philistinian army. But he was doing it in a way, not trying to free Israel, but more just to show off how powerful of a person he was. And in his personal life, everything that he did was so impulsive and irresponsible. But anytime someone tried to question him on it, he wouldn't listen to them. Because he believed he was able to do whatever it is that he wanted to do. And that showed most clear when he makes the decision that he's going to marry a Philistinian woman. He tells his parents, and his parents tell Samson, Samson, you are literally the ruler over Israel right now. You're young, you're attractive, you have the supernatural strength. You could be with any woman in Israel that you want. Why would you want to be with this Philistinian woman? She doesn't worship the God that we worship. She is a part of the people that you're supposed to be delivering us from. Why would you be in this relationship? And Samson's literal response to his parents is, no, 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 no. You just do what I tell you to do. I wasn't looking for a suggestion or an opinion. But the question still remains. Why would Samson be in a relationship with the exact type of person that he's not supposed to be with? I believe Samson was dealing with something that many of us deal with as well. This is actually the first part of our notes today. And that is that we have deep idols. Now, for anyone that doesn't know what an idol is, an idol is anything in your life that is in the position that God should be in. This series is called Thrones. Who's on the throne of your heart? And anything that is on the throne of your heart that isn't God himself is the actual thing that rules you. It rules how you spend your money, what you do publicly and privately. It rules the way you even see life and think about things. And we all have seen people with idols before, but we don't call them idols. We just call them by different names. Someone who works all the time, sometimes even denies their family, neglects their family because of how much they work. We call that person a workaholic. Someone that maybe has an issue with sex or maybe talks about women or has relationships with women that aren't appropriate. We call that person a womanizer. Someone that maybe have an issue with substance abuse. We call that person an addict. But all of those words are just different ways of calling out an idol in somebody's life. But when I talk about a deep idol, what I'm talking about is the thing that's deep down in the heart of each and every one of us that is trying to find some form of appeasement, some form of soothing. And that's the reason why someone would be a womanizer, why someone would be an alcoholic, why somebody would be a workaholic. It's something deep down that's trying to be appeased, but we only get to see what's on the surface. Now, to be sure you guys understand what I'm trying to say. I believe the best symbolism of this is shown in what I believe to be some of the most profound advertising I've ever seen on television. The Snickers commercials. 
I don't know if anybody's seen these Snickers commercials, but I love them. So let's have some fun right now. Let's watch one. No, 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 no. Let's watch two Snickers commercials. And hopefully after this, you guys will be better able to understand what I'm trying to communicate. Let's watch them together. Can we turn the AC up? I'm dying back here. It's on. Can't you feel it? Can you feel that? Oh. <laughs> Jeff, eat a Snickers, please. Why? Every time you get hungry, you turn into a diva. Just eat it so Ooh. we can all coexist. Turn into a diva. Mm -hmm. Put in your system, cranky pants. Okay. Thank you. Better? Better. Will you get your knees out of the back of my seat? <laughs> you're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. I never said that, honey. Shut up! Trying to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. It never is! <laughs> See, there are things on the surface, behaviors, attitudes, habits that are coming out of each and every one of us. And sometimes they are offensive. Sometimes they hurt the people that are around us. But what the deep battle is, is the deep battle is the actual hunger that we need to be satisfied in us in order for there to ever be a change. I believe that there's four deep idols that there are in life that we see in Scripture. And I'm going to take the time to talk about each one and in a way where you guys can kind of understand a little bit better what I'm trying to say. The first deep idol is control. And control says that life only has meaning and worth if I am able to have mastery or certainty in specific areas of my life. Someone that has the idol of control sometimes has this type of type A personality, which is fine. That's the way God made you. But many times, it's because of some type of circumstance that they've had, some hardship that they've dealt with, something that they've seen that make them say, you know what, I never want to be that person. I never want to have this situation occur in my life. So because of that, I'm going to make certain, I'm going to be sure that I have mastery in this area of my life so that I never become that. It's that type of personality that says, man, if I can't get someone to do it right, I'm just going to do it myself. And they condemn other people for not doing it the way that they want to do it. They condemn other people for not having sometimes the same level of mastery over self, over their lives as well. But all of that is a sign of a deep idol of control. The second deep idol is comfort. And that's that life only has meaning and worth if I have this kind of stress-free, pleasure-filled life. And it's the person that when times get tough and things aren't going their way, they just start seeming to shop a lot more for new things. They seem to get into certain relationships that aren't necessarily the best, but at the same time, they just don't want to be alone, so they'll stick with it. It's the type of relationships, it's the type of behavior that says, you know what, I'm going to do whatever it is that I got to do, so I just don't have to feel this pain and emptiness that I may have going on inside my own life. The third deep idol is approval. And that's that life only has meaning and worth if I am loved and respected by perhaps an individual person or group of people. 
It's the person that always says and does something in order to get a reaction out of somebody. It's the person that many times goes on social media and posts a bunch of pictures of themselves, sometimes provocative pictures of themselves and things that they're doing in order for someone to respond, oh, how beautiful you are, oh, how nice your life is. They're looking for some level of affirmation that they just don't have themselves, so they continue to go to this well of approval in order to get it. Another element of this is that people don't want to be rejected. The sin of pornography is something that many times is lost in the idol of comfort, which I just mentioned. But a lot of men, a lot of women even go to the, the sin of pornography because in pornography, you never get rejected. Where sometimes your spouse may reject you. Sometimes you may love some person that you loved, rejected you, broke up with you. It's always that safe place for you to find approval in a strange way. And the last deep idol I believe there is, is power. The belief that life has meaning if you have and show influence over others. It's that person that's popular, the person that's, that's very attractive, that has wealth, and believes that because of these things that they have, because of their external, that they get to treat anybody however they want. They can talk down to people. They can talk about people behind their back. They can treat other people like they're less because they're not on the same level as them. That is the deep idol of power, and that is what I believe to be the deep idol that Samson dealt with. Because instead of using his strength to the glory of the Lord, he kept using his strength to just show off how powerful he was. And when questioned about his motives, his answer was, no, I get to do what I want because who else can answer to me? And that in, that's included in this relationship with this Philistinian woman. So he marries this girl, and at the wedding ceremony, there's 30 Philistines that are in attendance, and he says, hey guys, I want to I do a bet with you. I'm going to tell you this riddle. If you can figure out this riddle within seven days, I'll give you a prize. But if you can't figure out this riddle within seven days, then all of you guys have to give me a prize. So they say, okay. He tells them the riddle. They can't figure it out. So they go to his wife and they say, listen, you're one of us. You better figure out what the truth is to this riddle. Otherwise, we're going to have some problems you're going to regret. So she goes to Samson and she says this in Judges 14, 16. Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me. You hate me. You have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. And from then on, she begins to literally press Samson, which is the old Hebrew word for nag. She nagged Samson over and over and over till eventually he told her the answer to the riddle. Now, no man in here knows what that feels like. But nevertheless, this was what Samson was dealing with. He tells his wife the riddle. His wife tells the Philistines and they answer his riddle. But look at what Samson's reaction is. He says this in verse 18. Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now, Samson clearly was not with any woman that I knew. Because there's no way you would get away with calling your wife heifer and live to see tomorrow. I wish I would try to call Jasmine. I'm, I'm going to move on. But you guys get what I'm trying to say. 
In this moment, we see Samson doesn't view his wife as the love of his life. He doesn't view this relationship as something that's intimate and close and something that he's supposed to cherish. When push comes to shove, he calls her a piece of property. And that his piece of property was messed with by these Philistine men. And an altercation breaks out between Samson and these Philistines, and it causes for his wife and his father-in-law to get killed in the process. And Samson, after this, begins to go on a rampage. He becomes a one-man army and starts going through all the Philistine military, destroying them as much as he can. He burns down a whole Philistinian village. He goes to one village that had a huge wall around it and a huge gate. He breaks the gates off, puts the gates on his back, walks four miles, and then throws it as far as he can. He would have dominated in the Olympics. And then after another altercation breaks out, he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Now keep in mind, once again, Nazarite vow, he was never supposed to touch anything dead, but it was just another opportunity to show how strong of a person he was. Instead of actually playing his role of trying to deliver the people of Israel. But not only is he fighting with this warfare, but then he's also being caught up in prostitution. Judges chapter 15 and 16 says that Samson was literally going to brothel after brothel in the Philistinian villages, sleeping with their women. And I know this is church, and we have to keep this as PG-13 as possible. But do you know one of the reasons why a lot of men go to prostitution? It's not always for comfort. It's actually because for a certain amount of money, you can treat someone however you want. It's a perverted version of power. Samson's deep idol of power was causing him to continue to go on a rampage to fight men and also to do things at night he wasn't supposed to. And eventually the Philistinian, Philistinian I'm going to get it right eventually by the end of the sermon, Philistinian army say to themselves, you know what, we're going about this the wrong way. Warfare can't defeat Samson, but a woman probably could. So they recruit a woman named Delilah, who was a famous prostitute amongst the Philistinians. And they tell her, Delilah, if you can find out the source of his strength, they know that it's not natural. They know that he has to get this power from somewhere. No human could ever be capable of these things. If you can find this out, we will make you rich for the rest of your days. So she goes ahead with it. She meets Samson. They instantly hit it off. And in the times that they're together, she continues to ask Samson this direct question in Judges chapter 16. Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Straight up ask him that question. No chill. And Samson first, he lies about it, he plays it off, but then it happens over and over and over till eventually we get further. And she says this later on in Judges chapter 16. Then she said to Samson, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Three times Samson lied about the source of his strength in three different ways, but Finally, she gets upset, and then she says this. And we see in the verses after that Samson, once again, feeling like she was nagging on him for so long, 
tells her, tells her the truth of his Nazarite vow and his covenant to God. Why would Samson tell a Philistinian prostitute the secret to his strength? Matter of fact, hasn't he been in this exact situation before? This is almost the exact same thing that his wife said to him when she tricked him into telling the truth. My second point in tonight is that you have deep idols that keep you in sin cycles. Guys, I know this is church and I'm the pastor, but I'm a human too and I have a lot of struggles. So tonight I wanted to open up about one that's really been a fight for me. And that's this. That I love food. I love me some good food. My mother raised me on good food. My wife has me on good food. My mother-in-law's macaroni and cheese is literally baked with the power of the Holy Spirit in it. I feel the presence of God just talking about it right now. It's so good. But the thing along with enjoying food is that I used to exercise and do sports a lot more than I do, but I'm just so busy now I don't get to do that. So I've been noticing when I look in the mirror that things are just a lot more rounder and heavier than they used to look like. So I tell myself, you know what? I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to start working out. I'm going to go on a diet, and I'm going to do all of that on Monday. <laughs> because the weekend is coming, and i got to eat all the good stuff now so I can get it out of my system and start Monday. And then Monday rolls around, and guys, I do it. I go to the gym and feel great. I eat a salad on the side, and I feel amazing. But then Tuesday shows up, and I realize, man, I'm just too busy and tired to go to the gym today. Man, a salad tastes great, but it just doesn't taste as good as pizza ever will, so I'm just going to eat the pizza instead. And then I end up back looking at the mirror like, man, I still have a lot of things that are a lot more round and heavier than they used to be. So next Monday, I'm going to do it right. I was joking about this with a friend of mine who's a nutritionist and big, strong, healthy guy. And he was laughing with me about it. But eventually he said, hey, man, you know the reason why a lot of diets and workout plans don't work for people? It's because they never approach the psychological reasons why they eat the foods that they eat and work out as much as they do. He said that there's a lot more emotion to our diets and our health than we realize. But then he said this, and I thought this was so profound. He said, until you actually look at those reasons why you eat and those reasons why you do those physical activities, all you're going to do is mow over the weeds for the roots to just bring those weeds right back up. That's the same reason why certain people go from one bad, toxic relationship into another bad, toxic relationship. That's the reason why one person who has sex outside of marriage or is watching pornography feels the guilt and shame, and they say, listen, I'm going to stop, I'm going to get my life together, only for a couple weeks to end up texting that person again, to end up back on that website again and doing the same thing. It's why certain people have their spending habits. It's why certain people do those things on social media that they do in order to get approval. It's this constant cycle. 
and nothing can ever change until it is uprooted out of us and filled with something else that's more appealing, more pleasing to follow. Samson didn't know this. So this deep idol of power, which caused him to continue to show off his strength and do whatever with Philistinian prostitutes, ended up becoming his downfall. After he tells all his heart to Delilah, he falls asleep on her lap. His hair is cut. He's captured by Philistinian soldiers. They gouge his eyes out. And they turn Samson into a slave. The rest of my major point tonight. You have deep idols that keep you in sin cycles which will derail your destiny. Similar to Samson, there are many of us in here living in the despair of bad decisions. Relationships have been ruined, opportunities have been lost, and time has been wasted because we have allowed our deep idols to create sin cycles that derailed our destiny. And now we live in a place of defeat. No matter what big of a mess we make of our lives, no matter the struggles that we face, we serve a God that is bigger than all of those things. The best part of Samson's life, in my opinion, is the end. Samson is brought into this huge Philistinian ceremony, and it's in this large coliseum. So many people are in this Colosseum. Scripture says that there were 3,000 people on the roof of the building. The nosebleeds, last cheap tickets were 3,000 people. We don't even know how many people were in the good seats or were on the floor. But everybody was there to praise their pagan God because finally they have found victory over Samson. And Samson is led out and he's put in between these two large columns that support the entire building. And Samson, blind and brokenhearted, prays this prayer to God. Judges 16, 28. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. God grants his prayer. And with one final blow, he destroys the columns that he was placed between, which destroys the entire Colosseum. And Samson killed more Philistines in that moment than he did in his entire life trying to show off. And he accomplished exactly what God was destined him to do. He got freedom for the people of Israel. Later on, when Samson is mentioned, he's mentioned as a great man of faith which is ironic to me because his lifestyle never showed it. But at the same time, it's not necessarily what I see, but it's about what God did in his life. My next point is that whatever your situation you're in, God can always deliver from despair. There may be some people in here that feel like deep idols in their heart are just too deep to uproot. There may be people in here today that feel like they've been stuck in that same sin cycle for so long and they should just quit trying. 
You may not even like yourself or the person that you see in the mirror because no matter how, how hard you try to fix your situation, you just keep going back to that same problem. But God, despite whatever issues that we had, still saw fit to come down in the form of Jesus Christ, die on the cross, be buried and rise again on the third day with all power and authority in his hand. Not just giving us salvation, but giving us victory over each and every deep idol that may have in our life. That is what I believe God wants for every person in here today. But how do we find that? How do we first figure out the deep idol and how do we get it out? Two simple things. First, we have to be honest with ourselves, with God, and with others. And guys, I believe one of the toughest things is actually sitting down and realizing why do I do the things that I do? Why do I have these sin struggles? And as a way of helping you, I put this, this will be on the Valley app and also on online later on. But I listed 22 questions, something that I do in my life to help uncover these idols. And these didn't originally come from me. They came from a theologian pastor named John Wesley. But he writes these questions down. And this is in your Valley notes, but I'm only going to read a few here today. The first one is this. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Second, am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Do I disobey God in anything? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Now, these questions could be very tough. But they're not made to discourage you, but they're made for you to find out, man, what is really going on with my heart? How do I really live this out for Jesus Christ? Where am I falling short? And when we ask these questions, these can put us on the trail of figuring out what deep idols are in our heart that needs to be uprooted. But we can't just be honest with ourselves. We need to pray to God about these things. And importantly, we need to also be in community, whether it's a community group, whether it's a mentor, a discipler, tell someone, hey, listen, I have these problems in my life. I just realized, can you help keep me accountable in this? Can you help me walk this out? I don't know if I can do this on my own. I've tried and I've failed so many times. But we can't just be honest. The second thing we have to do is be hopeful. It's very easy to hear a message like this. It's very easy to look over those 22 questions and feel defeated like, man, I'm just jacked up. I'm messed up. But according to scripture, we know that we are loved. We know that his mercies are new every morning. And that he has given us not only a new life, but he's given us himself. And whatever it is in our hearts that we are in need of, he has come to satisfy that need. So with all that said, I want to ask this question. What's ruling you beneath the surface? This series, again, is called Thrones. Who's on the throne of your heart? And a lot of us have might have thought that maybe it was money, maybe it was a relationship, maybe it was work. But maybe you're someone in here that's realized, man, I have an issue of control in my life. 
I always need things to go my way, otherwise I get upset. I need God, I need to trust in his control. Maybe you're someone in here that looks for comfort and you've gone to many things for comfort, but you realize that Jesus is actually all you need to keep you, sustain you, and give you joy in life. Maybe you're someone in here that needs approval and you've been going to it to different people, looking for different opportunities to just try to validate yourself. When in reality, God is all that you need to have a full, secure identity. And maybe you're someone in here like Samson that has the idol of power. And for so long, because of things that God has blessed you with, you've kind of twisted it around and tried to use it as reasons why you should be worshipped, why you should be praised. But today is the day when you realize, man, Jesus needs to be King of kings and Lord of lords over my life. And I need to trust in him instead of myself. I don't know if that's anybody in here today, but if it is you, I would love to pray for you right now. And I'd like to do something a little bit different than what we usually do. Everybody, could you close your eyes, please? And with nobody looking around, if you're someone in here today that feels like I have a deep idol in my life, that God needs to come and uproot in me so I can live fullness in him. Just like we do in worship, go ahead, just put two hands up right now. And I'd love to pray for you for whatever that situation is. Jesus, each and every hand that is in here today raised up is a hand that symbolizes surrender to you, O God. Surrender to everything, Lord, that we have tried to put in place of our lives to try to satisfy the deep, hurting idols that are within us. And God, we ask that right now, with our hands raised, that you come down like a father and pick us up. That you, Father God, being the great father that you are, continue to take out the deep idols in our lives, the things that cause us to do the things that we do, to have the habits that we know that aren't right. And that you not only take those out, but that you fill us with your spirit so that we can have more fullness and life in you and no longer in the so fleeting pursuits of this world. Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And we believe this is done now. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.